And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. about you and you see Elaine Reynolds sitting on row two in her wheelchair, you can say a prayer of thanks to God. We are so glad to see her. She was at Bible study Wednesday night and we're glad to see her this morning. If you thought you had to make some effort to get here this morning, Miss Elaine and family had to make some effort and we're glad to have them, glad to see them. Julie Orr's parents, the Detweilers, are here, and they are really nice people. We need to thank them for the cool temperatures that they have brought us at the end of their stay. They brought Carlsbad Caverns back with us. So it's about the same temperature here today right now as it was in the caverns. Good to have them. Julie's dad wrote me an email sometime back that was probably one of the most gracious, kind emails that I have ever received, asking that we pray for Julie when she was having some problems. I'm so glad that God heard the prayers of the congregation, and I'm sure that every child would be really blessed if they had parents that wanted everyone to take their concerns about a child to the Heavenly Father. I don't know that Troy could have picked better songs for the sermon this morning. Thank you, Troy. Appreciate that so very much. Fourth matter. Uh, We have been asked to pray for John Wood... John Wood is a deacon in the congregation at Eisenhower in Odessa. I've known him for many years, as a matter of fact, since the time he was a child. John has been in the hospital. He has MS, but he also developed pneumonia. He also has had some many strokes. He has had a number of things happen to him, and he has been in the hospital for over a month on a ventilator, and the family asked for us to pray for him. If he is ever taken off the ventilator, he's at Midland Memorial now after a month in the hospital at Odessa. If he's ever taken off the vent, he'll have to pretty much learn everything all over again speaking and walking and writing. For those familiar with the Wood family, John's father, Charles, has been an elder at Eisenhower over the years. They've been a very faithful family, and John and his wife, Sonia, are presently the custodians at Eisenhower. So let's go to God at this time in prayer on behalf of John and Sonia Wood. Our God, 
We pray your will be done in the life of our brother and friend, John Wood. We are thankful for him and for his family. And those of us that have known this family over the years appreciate their faithfulness, their love for you, and their love for the church, and their love for each other. John's got a lot of things physically wrong with him right now. But thanks to Jesus, we do not believe that there's anything at all wrong with his soul. We ask you to bless John and Sonia and their family. We place this matter in your hands. And we sincerely pray your will be done. In Christ's name, amen. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 56. Christ in the garden of Gethsemane. Please pay special attention to what I'm about to say. Please pay special attention to what I'm about to say. Only when we really know who Jesus is, the Son of God, only when we really know who Jesus is, the Son of God, and only when we really know where He came from, He came from the eternal, glorious presence of His Father. Only when we really know who He is and where He came from can we begin to appreciate the incarnation that God came down, that God clothed Himself in humanity And He became like us, yet without sin. Like us in every way. He had to be made like His brethren in every respect. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Only then do we begin to appreciate the incarnation. Only then, when we know who He really is and where He really came from, can we begin to appreciate what's taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane. We are on holy ground. Because here is Jesus, fully and perfectly God, deity, and yet at the same time, fully and perfectly man, yet no sin... And we see in Matthew 26 that there was no diluting of His humanity. He knew what it was like to hurt. He knew what it was like to face death. He knew what it was like to face adversity and enemies. He knew what it was like. More about that in a moment. Let me set the tone. A Christian without an imagination 
is like an observatory without any telescopes. A Christian without an imagination is like a physician without any learning, without any education. If we miss imagination by dismissing it, we have missed far too much. Brothers and sisters, in our desire to be book, chapter, verse, thus saith the Lord people, which is right and good, I wonder sometimes if we don't so emphasize facts and truth that we forget about the facts and truth, that the facts and truth are conveyed in Scripture with great imagination and great artistry. Think about this. Two of our most important doctrines biblically, the Lord's Supper... Isn't the Lord's Supper laden with imagery? It's true. It's a fact. It is a joyous reality that we can partake of the Supper and that we've been invited by Jesus Himself. But isn't the Lord's Supper just chock full, we would say, of imagery, of imagination? And we need to get the picture, the table to be at the table with the king. The bread representing his body, the juice, the fruit of the vine representing his blood. The concepts behind the Lord's Supper are just full of imagery and it requires an imagination brought under God's control to really appreciate the facts and truth behind the Lord's Supper. How could anyone argue differently? On the one hand, it doesn't matter how imaginative and creative a person is if they misuse, neglect, and abuse the Bible. But on the other hand, the Word of God itself is so full of imagery and figures of speech and stories, and parables, and truth that is being conveyed in an incredible variety of ways, we do ourselves a serious injustice not to develop our imaginations in a way that honors and glorifies God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 We ought to love God with everything we've got, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and imagination. Mark 12.30 I'll tell you this much, imagination can sure be used for the devil, and that's the truth. Why don't we think about using our imaginations more for God and bringing them under His control as well, our thoughts? I think of baptism. That is another important concept that Scripture, that the New Testament really stresses, and yet the imagery involved in baptism is unbelievably tremendous. At the point of baptism, a cleansing occurs. 
At the point of baptism, a death is occurring. A burial is occurring. And a resurrection is occurring. Get the picture, y'all. We can preach the truth about the Lord's Supper and baptism and yet do so in a way that really robs the Bible of the way it portrays things. And so what I am simply saying is God gave us imaginations and one of the things that we should ever think about in approaching Scripture is this. Help me to have a Christian imagination, but help me not to devise imaginary truths. Don't dismiss imagination. To do so is to miss much. Back to that statement. If we knew who He really was the beloved Son of God. And if we knew where He really came from, from the eternal glorious presence of His Father, we would better appreciate His incarnation, His coming down to this world, and what it must have been like to leave and come here. And what it must have been like to be in a garden praying and saying, as Roger read for us in Scripture, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death. Y'all, this is the second person of the Trinity talking to the first. It's the Son talking to the Father here. Oh, how we'll appreciate Gethsemane more. When those truths are seen factually and where we really get the picture with our imaginations. Here's what I'd like for us to do Matthew 26, 36 through 56 is a passage that contains significant imagery. I want to look at five images with you this morning from Matthew 26, 36 through 56 and Christ in the garden. Christ in the garden. Here's the first image I'd like for you to consider. The garden. When we look at Matthew 26, 36, he went to... Gethsemane. Other texts tell us, parallel texts tell us that this is part of the Mount of Olives, the western slope actually of the Mount of Olives. The name Gethsemane literally means oil press. And there must have been a place where people would take the olives when they were harvested and they would place the the olives in a press and squeeze them, crush them to get olive oil. There is no way for us in the West to appreciate how much 
olives and the products that they used from olives meant to people in the Middle East. There was the olives themselves as food. There was the olive oil used in cooking, used as cooking oil, used to to light lamps. There was olive oil used medicinally. There was oil used in sacrifices, olive oil. Olive oil was often used to anoint kings and priests and prophets. And this is the place, the garden, where Jesus prays. Verse 36, he went there to pray. Verse 39, he prayed. Verse 42, he prayed. Verse 44, he prayed. Verse 41, he tells Peter, James, and John to pray, to watch and pray, to be alert. There's no way that you get around the garden and Jesus praying there. Luke 22, 39 and 40 say it was his custom to go there, to the garden. The garden. Doesn't human history begin in a garden? Doesn't human history begin in a garden? In Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 25... We have a description of this beautiful garden of Eden where Adam and Eve have been placed. Isn't glory, isn't heaven described as a garden, as a paradise? 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, it's beauty. Revelation 21 and 22. So we think about humanity beginning in a garden... We think about eternity for the faithful being in a beautiful garden place called heaven, a spiritual realm. And I want you to know that the focal point of all of history is the garden. Because it is here in the mind of Jesus that he decides no matter what the pain, no matter what the agony, he is going to drink the cup. He's going to go to the cross and die. And when we get past Gethsemane, it is almost as if the Lord faces everything with incomparable, remarkable resolve. And serenity. Uh, Like the writer of Hebrews would say, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, it was in the garden that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. It's in the garden that Adam and Eve pretty much say, God is holding out on us, my will be done. 
But it's in a garden in Matthew 26 where Jesus prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. What a difference between the first and the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45. Romans 5 verses 15 through 21. A garden. Second image to think about. The cup. The cup. Figuratively speaking, the cup can be a cup of blessing. Like in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. Even in the presence of my enemies, my cup overflows. But... Often cup is used with reference to difficult, hard situations that involve our sacrifice and our pain. In Matthew 20, Jesus had asked James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they say, we are able Are you able to know something of the sacrifice and pain that I'm going to? And they say, yes, I am. Yes, we are. And Peter, earlier in this chapter, has boasted that though everyone else would forsake Jesus, he wouldn't do it. He would rather die than to deny his Lord. That's just earlier in this chapter. What is so striking to me, the one who instituted the Lord's Supper earlier in Matthew 26 says, Matthew 26 and verse 28, This is the blood of my New Testament shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he is the one who's asking if it's possible for the cup to pass. Has something ever happened in your life when you just weren't sure that you were going to make it through it? When the wind is out of your sails, proverbially speaking? When the ground just breaks in front of you and your whole world is shattered? Listen to me, friends. Jesus had stood up against religious leaders who were uh, hypocrites, the Pharisees and scribes and others. He had stood up against leaders of governments and kings. He had healed the sick. He had raised the dead. He cast demons out. Always in communication with His Father. Always wanting God's will to be done. And now in his humanity, he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass. That ought to tell you something about the nature of the cup that he would be drinking.
if there is a sense of dread, there is also a sense of humble submission to the will of God, not as I will, but your will be done. Jesus drank the cup the same way my wife drinks her first cup of coffee in the morning, every last drop. She empties it. But I want you to know, Jesus drank every last cup, drop of the cup for us, because He loved us. And out of his commitment to do the will of God. He drank damnation dry. And by that I mean he drank every drop of the condemnation that we deserved. He became sin who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The just died for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. He bore the curse of the cross, Galatians 3.13, so that we could be right with God. So that we could be delivered and rescued. Don't tell me the gospel is not wonderful news. But the gospel is about a cup. And I want you to know that at various points in your life, you will have to drink from a cup. A cup that involves pain and sacrifice on your part to do the will of God. But will your commitment to God and will your love for others motivate you the same way it did Jesus Christ? Our Lord, our Savior. Gethsemane, the garden. Third image. Asleep. Asleep. Eight disciples were left, it seems, by the entrance to Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John go further. The Lord takes them with him. And what an opportunity. I know they had to be exhausted because they went to sleep, not just once, but on three different times when Jesus had told them plainly, specifically, be alert and pray. Any of y'all ever have a child that didn't do what you plainly instructed them to do? And he is dealing with that while he is dealing with drinking the cup. Shall I not drink the cup? John 18, verses 10 and 11. Why Peter, James, and John? Well, we know that the Lord was close to them and they him. It's not good for man to be alone. God said in another context, we need friends. People need to be around others. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. 
A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 12. And what I'm saying is sometimes when you are having to drink a cup and you're in a garden, you want the presence of others. Isn't that exactly what Paul wants in 2 Timothy 4, Adam? He just wants Timothy to come, 2 Timothy 4, 9, and to come before winter, 2 Timothy 4, 21. He wants human companionship and all that he asks them to do is be alert and pray and they are asleep and not praying. These are the three men that were asleep in Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration until they woke up to see something magnificent. You know what they missed? The Bible says Jesus was a stone's throw away from them. How far is that? I guess it depends on how far you can throw a stone, huh? Luke 22, 41 through 44. He left them, but He came back one occasion, a second occasion, and a third to find them asleep. Think about the imagery. If Peter would have only listened to what Jesus said, he probably could have stayed awake and said something like this by way of prayer. Oh God, I hope that you'll forgive me for what the Lord says I'm about to do in the next few hours and deny Jesus. And that somehow after forgiving me, you'll use me and that I can be of great service in the kingdom. I suspect James and John, who'd been so full of themselves that their mom helping them about the chief seats in the kingdom, would say just to be in the kingdom is enough because the King of kings, we are in His midst, we are in His presence, and we want to be in His presence forever. I wonder, I wonder how many of us could say in our lives that we made some of our biggest mistakes and committed some of our biggest blunders and most grievous sins because we were asleep, figuratively speaking, and we weren't alert to what was happening. Has that ever been true in your life? I suspect that Peter, James, and John would have longed to hear what Jesus prayed that night. And while Scripture tells us some of it, wouldn't you like to have heard the rest? For when you deal with your own cup of sorrow and pain, for when you face your own garden of Gethsemane, and you have to decide, do you really want God's will to be done? Or my will? like Adam and Eve, asleep. The Bible often says, Arise, you that sleeps. Romans 13, 11 through 14. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 through 11. To continue with all in prayer. Colossians 4 and verse 6. And I think about this fact. It's the apostles who asked Jesus to teach us how to pray. In Luke 11, 1, 
And Jesus has given a great lesson on how to pray when you are at your lowest and the cup that you're drinking is the most bitter stuff you could ever deal with and it hurts and you swallow and you grieve. Oh, how hard of love to have heard my Lord pray that night. Image number four. The image of a kiss. Judas comes with a mob. The high priest, servants, and a guard. They are armed with swords and clubs, the text would say in Matthew 26. And Judas is leading the way, and he says, and has already let them know, whoever I go to and kiss, that is the one that is to be arrested. And we know what a kiss is, a symbol of love and affection. There are few things sweeter than a grandbaby's kiss. And Judas comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi. And the text says he kisses him. And the idea is not that he just kissed him once, but there seems to be repeated kissing. He wanted everyone present on the, in that evening to know exactly who was to be delivered up. And Jesus asked Judas... Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? A little earlier, at the Last Supper, recall how Judas finally says, Master, is it I? And Jesus says, You say that it is. Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? How hypocritical to use a symbol of love and affection in such a manner. How treacherous, how low could a guy go who would use a symbol like that and what's behind it, real love and affection to deliver Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. A couple of passages to remember, both from Proverbs, ironically. Buy the truth and sell it not. How much better off Judas would have been had he believed that and practiced it. Proverbs 23, 23. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy like poison. Do we mean what we sing? How great is our God... 
Oh, how I love Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God. Or am I blowing kisses of hypocrisy and treachery? Image number five from verses 47 to 56. The image of a sword. The word sword is found about six times, five or six times in this section alone. They come to Jesus with clubs and swords, a dagger, a large knife, we would say, a sword. How does Jesus respond? And notice, when you combine the account of Gethsemane in the Gospels, Jesus plainly tells them who he is. And the people are taken aback by it. They literally take a step back. You talk about a domino effect. They're so awestruck at Jesus' demeanor... And notice how he responds. Notice how he responds to mob power. You know what? There's a lot of mob power in the world today, isn't there? Notice how Jesus responds to mob power. He acknowledges who he is. And he says, I've been in the temple teaching daily. Some of you have probably even seen me there. And you come to me at night under the cover of darkness with clubs and swords to arrest me. Think of the irony of this because another expression that's found repeatedly in these verses is the idea of arrest or seize or lay hands on. Brother Bill, think about this. The the absolute presumptuousness of someone who really thinks that they can bust the Son of God. That they can arrest and lay hands on the Son of God. And Jesus knows that because He knows who He is and where He came from. And when we know who He really is and where He really came from, it's ironic to us too. When you look at the context, Peter asked the question, Lord, should we take out our swords? But he doesn't wait for Jesus to answer. Let me ask you this. I suspect most people think of Peter as their favorite apostle, and I can understand and relate to that. But Peter got his exercise often by jumping to conclusions. That's how he got his exercise, jumping to conclusions. Thank God nobody does that in the body of Christ today. Nobody gets their exercise by jumping to conclusions. You know, jumping to conclusions sometimes can be wonderful because that's when Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16 through 18. But just a few short verses later is when he says, Lord, be it far from you, this idea of going to the cross. Remember, when you get your exercise by jumping to conclusions, you need to have a more well-rounded exercise plan. 
But Peter gets out his sword, not waiting for Jesus to answer. And I'm sure he is aiming for the head, for the neck of one of the men that's present. Now think about this. Think of the irony of a Peter who's willing to pull his sword out with a whole bunch of guys with clubs and swords in the middle of the night. And the irony that he's the one who denies him in front of a servant girl and a fire. Think about that, Troy. And aiming for the head of Malchus, the high priest's servant, he ends up cutting off his ear. Not found here in Matthew, but found in John. We know that it's Peter who did this, and we know that Jesus healed Malchus's ear. I wonder if Malchus ever forgot the events of that evening. I wonder if Malchus ever became a Christian. I was part of an angry mob that had come to deliver Jesus Christ to be crucified. And in the circumstances of that occasion, a man tried to kill me and took off my ear. And the one who I came to arrest restored my ear. You know, if, if Malchus never became a Christian, I'd say he's a, he has something a lot more wrong with his heart than his ear before, wouldn't you? Swords. And what Jesus does in responding to Peter is incredible. He says, Peter, don't you know that those who live by the sword die by the sword? Peter, don't you know that even now I could call 12 legions of angels and that God would send them down? That's a legion for all 11 apostles and for, for one for me if that's how he wanted to think about it. You think that they would make short work of a bunch of men with swords and clubs? Undoubtedly. But what Jesus does even more is take one of those men who were part of the mob, was part of the mob, and restores that man's ear when Peter had used his sword. What that passage tells us is this. A lot of us have a propensity to violence, don't we? And yes, there's a place for self-defense. But sometimes we use our mouths like a weapon, don't we? A sword, Proverbs 12, 18. And while we would never take a knife literally and stab someone in the back, we would take our words and do it. The tongue is a poison and a deadly fire, James 3, 1 through 12. Five images. A lot to think about. But it's in the garden. 
that we see so clearly who Jesus is. The beloved Son of God. The beloved Son of Man. Perfect God. Perfectly human, yet without sin. And we see someone who loves so much and is so committed to God's will that he is willing to drink the worst cup that one could even think of. And he would drink every drop of it. The splendor of a king. How great is our God. That is the God who goes to the cross. That is the man who goes to the cross for us. If you leave this building outside of Jesus, what are you saying about him? What are you saying about the cup that he drank on your behalf? What are you saying about all that he endured? In faith, come to Jesus and trust. Turn from your sins and lean on Him. And more than anything, desire to walk in a way that shows commitment and love to God and to being with God forever. Have a desire to confess the precious name of Jesus before this very assembly. We'll ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I believe that Jesus is the Son of God with all my heart. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Express the desire to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. To put on Christ. Galatians 3.27. Why? Why? Because truth matters and appreciating the image matters. How can anyone really get into Christ who doesn't die to self? Who doesn't bury self? And who does not arise to walk in newness of life? When does that occur? Baptism. Thank you for listening well. Had a lot to say doing a different type of study. But I hope you get the picture of Gethsemane. Let us stand and sing.